You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Gazing Upon Him, losing sight of God in the busyness of life is easy. Philip Edwards will remind us of the disciplines we must practice to keep him in view. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media now at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Good evening everyone and uh, welcome back to this uh, third lesson or third evening, the fifth and sixth lesson on practicing the presence of God. Uh, I hope that as you've gone away over the weeks, you've put some of the things into practice. I know not everything appeals to everyone, I fully understand that, but just the simple things as we start to practice them then uh, we're making ourselves more conscious all the time of God's presence with us. Let's just pray then before we uh, start our study this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you're here always in our presence. We're learning that. We're learning that you will never leave us. You'll never abandon us. You'll never forsake us. And so whenever we meet together, um, uh, we come together in a special way, as though you were with everyone and we gather together as one with you. And so, Father, we pray that you'll open our understanding this evening, you'll minister to our spirits, your truth into our life. Lord, if there are things we've got to come to terms with or uh, disciplines we have to learn, please, Lord, impress them upon our hearts in the loving way you do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we continue with this study, uh, what I want to do is to remind ourselves of what we mean by practicing the presence of God. I've got two or three quotes for you. The first one is by uh, a dear brother, Selwyn Hughes. Some of you might know of him or have read some of his books. He says this, practicing the presence is the fixing of our souls upon God the savouring of him, the remembering of his unbreakable promise that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Another uh, definition here is by uh, that uh, character we looked at last week, uh, Brother Lawrence. He said this about practising the presence. It is the unbroken attitude of mind which envisages God within, the hearer of all speech, the monitor of all thoughts, and the judge of all actions. And I came across this one this week, I was studying for something else, but I just couldn't resist uh, putting this down. And uh, this is he, uh, in my studies this week, uh, he's the cause of me being a bit wayward because uh, I'm going to veer away from the notes. Well, you know I veer away from the notes anyway quite regularly, but I might veer for the whole of the first lesson. So be patient with me, uh, but uh, I think you'll find it's well worth it. Anyway, so it, it came as another study I was doing, but this is what Dallas uh, Willard said. God is able to penetrate and intertwine himself within the fibres of the human self in such a way that those who are enveloped in his loving compassion will never be alone. That just really struck me quite forcibly. Sometimes we can think of God in heaven or uh, approaching God or uh, God being with us and not being with us. But he says, no, it's none of those. God is entwined in the very fibres of our being. I loved it, I loved it. So we don't lose sight of the fact that God is with us in everything that we do. We must keep that focus before us. Sometimes we need to pause from time to time because we get so busy with life, we just have to stop and remind ourselves and reflect on the fact that God 
is there still. He's never moved. He's never shifted. And the more often we do this, uh, we just become more deeply aware of his presence. It's obvious, if you don't think of God all day, then you're not conscious of his presence. If you think of him 10 times a day, you're more conscious. If you think of him 100 times a day, you're just more aware all the time that he's there. And we have a tendency just to forget him, just to not think about him. We get so busy with stuff because this whole course that we're looking at is about practicing his presence on a, as it were, continual basis. As I said, uh, as I was reading a lot about what Dallas Willard said, uh, it got me thinking of some other things. So um, I've put together another little lesson here that I want to interject. Now, uh, we will catch up with all the others, so be patient with me. Uh, we might squeeze them a little bit to get everything in, but I just, I just felt I really had to uh, share this with you. God created mankind to live in relationship. That's how he made us. When he formed us and created each one of us, there's something in us that we must have relationship. It, it's not good to be alone. We don't want to be alone. If we want to and we're, we draw ourselves away, it's not a healthy thing to do. We should be always desiring to have friends, relationships, things like that. Having said that, in Genesis 2 and 8, we read this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. As I was thinking of that, I thought, hmm, there's just one man on his own, and God sets him in a garden on his own. We have no idea of the time uh, with creation. Uh, how, how long uh, Adam was there before Eve and uh, the children and so forth. It's though time didn't exist and there is no mention of time. So Adam could have been there many years on his own, couldn't he? We don't know. We just assume that it all happened like this. As we read it quickly, we think it happened because that might not be the case. In fact, as I was reading that passage, it says this in Genesis 2 and 8, which I just read to you. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. doesn't say anything else. Then it, it, dis, it describes then the garden. It talks about the gold that was there and the onyx. It talks about the rivers. It talks about the trees that he had put within the garden. And then down in 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Well, you thought, you've just said that. Why are you saying it all over again if you've just said that? To me, it conjured up the thought that he said it. And then lots of things happened as though time elapsed. And then he said it again. There's always reasons for things. We don't always fully understand it. But if we just meditate on the word a little bit, sometimes we come up with the idea why God has written things in such a way. So it indicates a period of time when Adam was there on his own. He had no physical contact with anyone else. But what he did have... He had fellowship or communion with the Father. That's what he had. That's all he had. Just God and Adam. Now, did God make a mistake in doing that? Why didn't he make them both together? Because it says a little bit later, the Lord God said it's not good that man should be on his own. So, but God can't do anything bad. Everything God does is perfect. So if he makes Adam without a physical partner, without anyone else to talk to, he's done it on purpose. Because what he wants Adam, and Adam is our representative, isn't he, in many ways, what he wanted Adam to do was have time when it was just him and God. Because that is the highest relationship we have, you see. We must have physical relationships, I understand that. And God knew that, and that's why God said that. But the highest relationship of all is the one you have with God. 
We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. It's as though God is a jealous God. Well, Scripture says he is many times. He's jealous that we don't run off and worship other idols. He's not jealous in a, a negative, harmful way that often jealousy is expressed amongst us. That's not good. But it says that God is jealous for us. So he makes Adam... And he just wants him for himself, you see. He doesn't want him distracted. As he went. This is all my imagination and thinking, okay? He doesn't want him distracted because soon as other people are on the scene, we're easily distracted and we're taken away from our communion with God. And God loved that communion. I suppose, well, in my imagination, God doesn't think or talk like this at all. Oh, well, I suppose I better make him a woman because he needs, he needs some physical company, this man. But it's like, I don't want to do that because I just want to commune with man. See how much God wants to commune with you? He wants to. He wants to. So much. And he's always there, always desirous to fellowship and commune with us. The Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam's relationship with God was completely different from his relationship with another person. And so is yours. So is yours. We know what it's like to relate to people, whether it's a husband, a wife, children, parents, friends, colleagues, we know about this relationship, but this relationship we have with God is infinitely greater, more special, more precious than anything here. And yet it can be the one that we neglect the most. But we're going to get more out of a relationship with the Almighty than we will with the most dearest, precious person to us who loves us. I'm not detracting from their love and their relationship. I'm just exalting God's relationship with us. It's different and it's special. The rest of this part of the evening, this lesson, I want to talk about the difference between the two. Because when I read about this and thought about this. It so excited me, I'm thinking, I've got to share it with these people. They're so precious. So there we go. So God creates this woman. Woman was never created to wait on man. You know that, don't you, women? You weren't created for that. You weren't created subservient. Um, of less importance, not for one second, not for one moment. You were there to help him. God created men and women equal. There's no question about it. Women have had a terrible deal. Not, not just a long time ago, but through the centuries. Even now, throughout the world, women still have a very, very, very bad time. It's only Christianity, true Christianity, that can really liberate the woman and elevate her to that person of equality with man. Although the church hasn't always scored good on this one. She was to work alongside him, it says. She was to rule with him. Together they would rule. But despite how close they got together in their relationship, it would never be as close and intimate as it was that the individual could have with God. An individual can have a far deeper relationship with God than they can with any other person in the world. There will always be a sense of separation between two people. Even the most loving husband and wife who spent decades together and are close together, there will always be something of a separation 
in the relationship, there will always be two individuals who are sharing their lives together. Two different personalities who share their lives together. With God, we've got something different. We've got a God who intertwines himself, as it were, with the very fabric of our being. That you can't separate God and man. <laughs> you can separate everyone else. You can easily, easily separate them. He's this, she's that, he speaks like this, she speaks like that, it's easy. But with God and man, we can be so woven together, you can't tell the difference. What did the man Christ Jesus say? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You say, oh, that was Jesus. Mm -mm. No, no. He was the Son of Man. And he was so woven with his Father. He says, everything the Father thinks, I think. Everything the Father says, I say. It's as though we're woven together, entwined together. That's what God wants for you. He wants to intertwine our lives so we know the very thoughts and the purposes of God and we don't have to work at it too hard. That's why it's important we practice the presence of God. Because that's what he wants. God doesn't sell us short. We sell ourselves short. We don't go as far as he wants to take us. You say, Phil, I know a verse. It's in Genesis 2 and 24. It says, they too will become one flesh. What about that one then? What does that mean? Well, what does it mean? The two of them becoming one flesh. Well, I think the idea with God was when I join them together, it will be an unbreakable lifetime union. Once together, that's it. But that only happened before the fall. Once the fall came, men and women just found it easy, easier to split than to try and work it together. And so God didn't change his mind. He knew what men and women would be like after the fall. And so he permitted this separation because he wants peace in people's lives. Now, I'm not advocating divorce. Divorce isn't good for one minute. And yet, God, we have to have it because of the hardness of people's hearts. This, this two becoming one flesh was that through the sexual union they would produce offspring that would be part of both of them. One would hope the best traits of both. It doesn't always quite work out that way. Someone went to Albert Einstein once and said, a beautiful, beautiful girl, and she said, you know, we should marry and have children with your brains and my beauty. What a wonderful person. But he says, yes, but what if they have your brains <laughs> and my beauty? Okay. You never know quite what you're going to get, do you? So, but the idea is there are some of both parts there. There's often, there's their own personality, but you know, it's, oh, you're just like your mother, you're just like your father, and so on and so forth. The two that come together, they will come together and have one purpose in life. That's the plan of married life, that you're building together, you're moving forward together, a family, a home, a business, or whatever, or in your worship of the Lord, you move on together. Their relationship should produce a balanced whole. It's not just uh, all male or all female, but it's both. And bending to one another to appreciate the balance of life. And a mutual dependence on one another. You must need each other to a point where you think, I don't think I can survive without you. But all the time. 
They're two separate people, you see. They complement each other. They share their lives with each other. But they're never interwoven. They're two separate people coming as close as they possibly can. But in our relationship with God, he is able to penetrate and intertwine himself in the very fibre of our being. I just think that's a beautiful picture of what God wants to communicate with you. That's what God wants. Something that no human can do. It's not possible. As Christians then, we have been enveloped in his love. His love is not an attribute of God. It's an attribute of ours. It's part of our character to love. We, we work on being more loving. It's an attribute of ours. But it's not with God. It's who God is. He is love. So when it says that God embraces you with his love, God, God himself embraces you, drawn into the very person of God. We have entered into a loving companionship and we will never, ever be alone ever again. That's why we practice his presence, you see. We can enjoy something that is for eternity. Jesus, you know, in the, in the upper room on the night before his crucifixion, he's got the 11. Judas has already gone to do what he's gone to do, and Jesus spends those four or five hours with them. Oh, I find that teaching so fascinating. Those hours uh, in John 13 to 18, where he's teaching and teaching and teaching and pouring his heart out and being so compassionate towards them. He says this in 14 and 23 of John's Gospel. If, any love, if, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. What does that mean? It means he will, make, he will make me, he says, their sovereign Lord. We've made Jesus our sovereign Lord. He says, if you do that, my Father will love him. <laughs> you see, it's not just he'll be nice to you, or he will like you. He will embrace you because of the fact that you've received his son as your sovereign Lord. My father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't salvation just something else? It's not just, oh, thank goodness, I'm saved and going to heaven. Oh, that's right, that's at the first rung. We're being embraced by God himself in all his love. And he's weaving himself into our lives. Jesus is saying, your aloneness, your separation that happened through what Adam and Eve did, that, that wrenching away of me from you, is brought nigh, back together, because of what Christ did on the cross. I've come back into your life in the fullness that I was with Adam and Eve. Then Paul, talking to the Christians at Rome, he asks a question, and of course he answers it. He would, wouldn't he? It says in Romans 8 and 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer? He said, I am convinced, I am thoroughly convinced that neither death nor life, whether he says I'm dead or alive, nothing can separate me from Christ who has woven himself into my very being. Neither angels nor demons, neither anything good or anything bad can separate Christ, God himself, dwelling on the inside of us. Neither the present 
nor the future. In other words, not the past, but what's now and in the future for eternity. Nothing will separate me from God and his involvement, his entry into my life. Neither height nor depth, things in heaven or hell or on the earth, nor anything else in all creation, just in case I've missed anything, anything else in all creation, anyone, anything, nothing can separate God from his indwelling presence in our lives. It's impossible. Paul, he says, I'm thoroughly convinced of this. Nothing in all creation, he says, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This love of God, this very life of God, he's saying, nothing can separate us from this. And another thing Jesus said when he was leaving this dimension and going into another dimension, he was leaving this earth. He said this, and surely... I just love all the odd little words that, that drop into the scripture just in case you miss something. He says, and surely, in other words, without a doubt. So Paul is saying, I am thoroughly convinced about this. And now Jesus is saying, and surely I am with you now and again. No, I am with you always to the very end of this age. He knew. Paul knew, God knew, the work on the cross of Calvary brought God into our very being and our very lives, intertwining himself in such a wonderful way that we don't even know he's there. How can that be? The very God who created the whole universe dwells within your very being and you not know about it. He's so good, you see. Because any response has to come from you, from your heart. He never imposes himself in the relationship because he's perfect in his relationship. Have you prayed about things and said, God, just come and tell me what to do. Just show me what to do. I don't know what to do. Just make it clear. God says, I never do that. It's not the way I am. It's not the way it works. You walk with me. You practice my presence. And then you will know what you're supposed to do. Oh. That's why he's never told you, you see, what to do. Oh, now and again he does. But most of the time he doesn't bother. He says, no, 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 that's a shortcut. It's a shortcut to a tacky relationship. And my relationship with you is far deeper than that, that you ask me a question and I give you the answer. No, 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 you can pay a solicitor to do that. You can pay somebody else to do that. That's not the way it works with me. You walk with me, and my mind becomes your mind. I wonder why he never told me anything. You're supposed to know, you see. But you won't know unless you walk with him. You won't know. And he'll say, well, I'm not telling you then. Unless it serves my purposes for another reason. What did Jesus mean when he said, surely I'll be with you? In some remote, abstract way, he would be with us? No. He would be there with us. You brought the Father with you this evening, did you know? And you brought the Son with you. That's what's so attractive about you. Oh, you thought it was your hair or your, your makeup or... And listen, you're all wonderful and presentable, but that's not, that's not what's lovely to me. Understand, <laughs> there is something a lot deeper that's lovely. That's what Christians, when they meet another Christian, they say, oh, I just knew you were a Christian, but you don't know why. 
because God was in there. God was in there and God's in you. And the God in you recognised the God in them. Isn't it wonderful, you see? It was so wonderful. The Beatles wrote a song. Well, they wrote lots of songs, didn't they? They're very successful at it. They wrote this one and they sang one. It's about people being lonely. Do you know what the song was? Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. Remember the lyrics of that? It went something like this. All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? When you read what some of these songwriters wrote, it's very profound. I mean, we just think of the Beatles, you know. But listen, this, this song, if you look at it, and many other of their songs, they were only young men in their 20s. Not with great philosophical views or, or great education, really. I'm not knocking them in any way. They were just working-class boys. And yet what they wrote in this song and many songs was really profound. It was as though God was reflecting the thoughts and the minds of society in their songs. It's, it's fascinating. He talks about a Father Mackenzie. Do you remember in the song? Father Mackenzie talks about him. He says he's writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one will come near anymore. I just wonder what he meant by that. Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear because no one comes near. I thought, well, does that mean nobody went to church to hear Father Mackenzie's sermon? Or when they came to the church, was there a disconnect between them and God? And so they didn't hear God speaking through Father Mackenzie. It goes on to say in another verse, Eleanor Rigby, she died in the church and was buried along with her name. <laughs> that sounds awful, doesn't it? Like the only thing she had was her name and nothing else. Nobody came, it says, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walked from the grave. Listen to this. No one was saved. Isn't that amazing? See, he wrote the song, perhaps not knowing what he was saying, but he was saying, this world is cut off from God. I'm not saying he knew God. I don't know enough about them. But... Whoever helped him and spoke through him and motivated the song, it gives us a reflection of society cut off from God, not hearing God, lost, none of them, saved, as it were. <clears throat> All around us, scores and scores of people who were alone. Often people are alone as they get older in life, aren't they? They're alone because their loved one, their spouse has passed away. They're gone. Or they're alone because they're divorced and the person they shared their life with is not with them anymore. There's a disconnect between them and their children because perhaps their children have moved away and they've got their own lives and, and so there's this disconnect. You just might connect very rarely. You no longer work, so work colleagues no longer exist. You become isolated in your home. Oh. They were bringing out a report today, making a lot of fuss about people who have Alzheimer's disease. And they said that women get it more than men. Uh, I think twice as many women suffer than men. And uh, a lot of it, they said, uh, it was really accelerated during the COVID situation. 
people being alone. And being alone accelerates uh, Alzheimer's. That was their ideas, anyway. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? So, isolation is not a good thing. And most of all, these people do not know the indwelling of God. You see, you can put up with all the rest, but you must have God dwelling. If God isn't there, that's the worst of all, that God would not be there. At the end of our journey, it's comforting to think that people will be around us who love us. Yes, that would be nice. Uh, maybe when you get to my age, you start thinking about these sorts of things a little bit, I don't know. I just, I just thought, no, it's for a long time yet. Don't worry about that. I, I plan on being around and terrifying people a lot more before then. Um, it's, it's just like you think your children will be there or, uh, you know, usually the wife outlives the men. <laughs> That's a good point, isn't it? Okay. Uh, and, and, so, and so they'll be there with you, but they won't be able to come with you when you go, will they? They can only sit in the room. Who will you enter into the next world with? Is it the one who's been entwined in your life all the time? Even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, there is nothing to fear. Why not? Because he's with us. He's with us. Isn't that exciting? We mustn't leave it until the, the last end days of our life to discover his presence. We need to do it now. We need to live with him now. Live with him entwined in our lives now. Live every moment with him. Appreciate him. Contacting him. Talking to him. Walking with him. Understanding him. Letting him fill our whole being. And then when we reach the end... We'll just take this walk together, you and him, into eternity. Ah, oh, it's exciting, isn't it? Move on. We've got a fantastic gospel. The message is that God loves us, that Jesus has saved us, and we'll never, ever, 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 ever ever, ever experienced aloneness, ever again. But we must allow him to enter right into us, and we must fellowship with him. Appreciate is intertwining in our very fibre. That's what I could not tell you this evening. So we'll have a little break now. I promise that I won't break for so long as I did last week. So uh, about 20 minutes uh, if you're uh, online and uh, we'll be back uh, to do the second part. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. Sorry that we um, took that divergent step, but I think it was important that uh, just to share those things. We'll come back on to the notes now and we are uh, picking up on the next uh, practice and that of biblical meditation. Uh, one of the students uh, discovered something this week, come across something, so I'm going to ask her if she'll come and just share uh, a testimony, really, or what the Lord showed her. Quite right, so you should be. I was... Um just scrolling today because I needed a scripture to give to somebody and I came across this. I said to him, this is amazing, read this. And he said, you better share it tonight. So that's why I'm up here. So the scripture that I read and was looking for is in Isaiah 30 verse 15. And it's in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And there's a little story underneath that's worth reading. 
A Danish author tells the story of an old peasant who made an unusual request of his son as he lay dying. He asked his son to go into the best room of the house every day and sit there alone for half an hour. The son agreed to the strange request and promised his father he would do what he had been told. After his father's death, the son kept faithful to his promise. He did this unusual thing, spending a half an hour alone each day. At first, the time of quiet and solitude was uncomfortable. He became restless and anxious for the time to end. But over the weeks, that half hour of solitude grew into a cherished and even transforming habit. The son looked forward to this brief, quiet time each day and even began to thrive on it. He began to experience deep and calming changes within himself. Are you willing to be alone for half an hour a day? Are you or will you take an adventure of expectant faith, not looking for a predefined experience, not seeking an emotional high, but asking Jesus to come to you in his own way? With your body relaxed and comfortable and looking only to Jesus, your heart will be turned to him in adoration. From this experience, you are likely to have a greater desire to obey him. People who devote time to be alone with the Lord find a renewed reservoir of personal strength and quiet confidence. The world desperately needs people who are trying out Jesus' way of life and have an ever-deepening experience of him. They are looking for peace and joy that lasts, and those qualities only show up in the lives of believers who allow Jesus to reign in their hearts. Spend some peaceful moments alone with the Lord tomorrow or today and watch the peace and joy in your heart grow and spill over into the lives of others. I thought that was amazing when I came across that today. I got quite excited. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. There we go. God's there all the time, speaking, speaking, speaking. We're going to look at Bible meditation then. Um, this probably is without doubt one of the, the best ways we could ever practice realising God's presence in our lives. It's an ancient Christian practice. Uh, it's so ancient, uh, it's got a Latin name, that's how ancient it is. Um, and you might have heard it, it's called Lectio Divina. The whole idea of just allowing the Word of God to enter into us and take root, as it were, and enter not just our head and our mind, but enter our very spirits. That name means in, uh, in the English divine reading. What is it? It's a traditional monastic practice of scriptural reading, meditation and prayer intended to promote communion with God and to increase the knowledge of God's word. We often treat scripture, reading it, um, as students of the text. We want to know what the story says. We want to know the teaching of this or the teaching of that. And so we, we approach the Bible like that. But this, what we're going to do now in meditation, is we're going to approach it so that the Word of God enters into us and becomes living and active within us. So we have to slow the whole process down and allow the Word of God that time it needs to enter deeply into us so that it has a lasting effect in our lives. What we're going to do, and we can practice it together, we'll take a verse of scripture. We will allow it 
to soak into our thoughts, as it were. It might be a line or a phrase, a sentence. We'll let that verse just uh, mull over in our heads and our thinking. Usually in this process, we would take one verse for the day and keep coming back to it throughout the day. Or it could be just a word that God has spoken to you and you allow it to really affect your life. Probe it. Contemplate the word. Think around it. Draw from it everything that God has put into it. And let it affect us deeply in our lives. I'm going to turn you to a passage of scripture and uh, if you'll come with me then we can look at this together. It's Psalm, Psalm 46 and we'll practice this together. The idea in this process is that we would read it um, maybe three or four times. So we're not looking to read a vast amount, we just want to read a small amount. We'll read it, say, four times. The first time that we read this passage, or, or we'll read it together, but normally you would be sitting quietly on your own, you would ask God maybe to lead you to a passage that you should read. Maybe you just, just one that you're thinking of, or, or just where your Bible is, where it opens. And you just start to read, and you read it until something comes out of the passage and strikes you, maybe a line or a, a sentence, just a few words. I've obviously done this and I've done it in preparation, but we'll read it together and then I'll give you the, the line or the verse that I've chosen. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. And the mountain, mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolation he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So as you just read that quietly to yourself and say, Lord, is there some verse, line, word that I need to be focusing on? Just cause it to lift off the pages, as it were. Well, I've come prepared, so the one I've got is in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. In this meditation, we first take the words and they're only here in our mind. You might have heard it many times, so it's familiar with you. But you don't want it here. You want it here. Because it's from the heart that life changes, that faith emanates. It's from the inside. This word that often is hearing our mind has to somehow get into the very heart of a person. So it, it brings permanent transformation. It brings life. So 
in one's second reading, you might read the whole thing or just focus on this one. Be still and know that I am God. The first stage was simply to read it. The second stage is to meditate upon it. One of the synonyms for to meditate is to ruminate. Think, what on earth are you getting into now, Philip? Okay. There are animals that ruminate. <laughs> uh, sheep, camels, goats, uh, cows, giraffes, um, even whales, apparently, or big fish. I did a study once on uh, Jonah and discovered that whales or big fishes ruminated, um, which leads you to the conclusion perhaps he died inside the big whale. I don't know. Anyway, the thought that this whale had several compartments and gases were flowing from one to the other, just like, anyway, never mind. Anyway, so the idea is that um, these animals, in their stomach, they have several compartments. And uh, when they consume food, um, the, the animal first just bolts it down, eats as much as it can, and it goes into this first compartment of the stomach, and it's actually called the rumen. And then after a little while, of course, it just regurgitates all this food back into his mouth again. Not a very pleasant idea, because the animal then chews it again, and he chews it and chews it until he chews all the goodness out of it and then it goes back into him again. We've got a name for this, haven't we? It's called chewing the cud. We've got an expression, chewing the cud. The food becomes thoroughly congested and absorbed into the bloodstream. It wouldn't if you didn't do this. We tell our children, don't we? Don't bolt your food, eat it slowly. Chew it so many times. It gets really boring, doesn't it, chewing so many times. Um, but the idea that we want it to, to really fully do all the good that it can. What's the spiritual connection with this? Listen to this. When a Christian takes a text or a phrase of the Bible and quietly and continuously contemplates it, the power and energy that is contained in the Word of God is absorbed into the Spirit, which is the motivating centre of our personality. It's not because I'm old I forget lots of things. When I was young I forgot lots of things. If I wanted to remember it, we used to do this thing called swatting, didn't we? Remember, you'd read it again and again and again and again until it got there. It got from here somewhere else. You got it and then you could regurgitate it any time you needed to. You could bring it out. Without that repetition, repetition, it didn't stick. I've read through the Bible, I, I don't know, maybe four, five, six times. Not a lot, considering I'm a Christian all these years. Um, it isn't the most beneficial way, I don't believe, to read the Bible, just from cover to cover as quickly as you can. You probably need to do it once or twice. Actually, when I did it, I found it a bit depressing because it was so depressing, the Old Testament. I mean, they could never get off ground zero, could they? It was awful, you know, they just kept getting it wrong and getting it wrong and getting it wrong, and I thought, oh, this is awful. Um, uh, I was glad to get to the New Testament, actually. Um, but really, to read the Word of God slowly, to let it have its full effect, to let it work itself into your spirit, is what meditation is all about. I grew up in a Pentecostal church and then a charismatic church. I never heard anything ever about meditation. It's not, it's not done, is it? in these noisy, lively churches too much, you'd perhaps have to go to a, a more quiet, sedate church where they would actually teach you about things like meditation. But 
I suppose as I got older and appreciated the different strands of the church, appreciate something of these different teachings. So the mind is not the most important part of us. It's the spirit. Life emanates from the spirit of a man. It is the wellspring of life. Guard it, the word of God says. Guard your spirit. Watch what goes into your spirit. Not everything you watch and see goes into your spirit. Most of it just flies past you. you if you spend a lot of time, though, with something, it'll get down into the spirit of a person. Truth, then, held in the mind, becomes assimilated into the spirit, where it has its greatest influence and its greatest effect. The word, then, is living and it's active. So, how do we meditate God's word? We'll chew it over. We'll chew it over until we've got everything out of it. We'll just take a line, this line I suggested, be still and know that I am God. And we'll take every word and we'll chew it until we've got everything out of it. You say, Phil, we could be here all night. Yeah, we could, so I won't cause that to happen. Be still and know that I am God. To be. Being. God's interested more in my being than my doing. It's just a reality. We get so caught up in the doing, but God's looking at the heart. You could be doing lots of things with the wrong motivation, doing lots of things with the wrong attitude. He wants to see you being, as it were. Being is who I am. Be, he says, be still. Still. He leads me beside still waters. My soul rests in the Lord. Lord, I wait for you. And the verse that Daphne quoted there, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Be still. Be still. <laughs> Sometimes we have major things in our lives and we pray and rush about. You mustn't do that. Be still. Be still before the Lord. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything. Be still in his presence. Expecting eventually to know, to know what you're to do. Be still and, and what? Is there more to being still and quiet? He says, be still and know. To know. Be still and know. What do I know about God? Hmm. I know now he lives in me. He's dwelling within me. He wants me to succeed. I know that. He wants me to know how much he loves me. I know he wants to guide me and direct me, but I have to walk with him in stillness and quietness to know what God wants to do. I know he's sovereign over my life. I know whatever happens to me, he permits it to happen in my life. I know these things. I know my God. So as we meditate on it, we're moving closer, closer to God, as it were. 
Our hearts are becoming full of his word. It says that. Be still and know that. Is there something, God, that I am to do? What do you want me to do? Sometimes God wants you to do nothing. He says, no, you'll mess it up. I've got to get someone else to do this. Just be still. If there's something for you to do, I will tell you what it is I want you to do. Be still and know that I, the I am, he is the I am. The God is there. The God himself is personally involved in everything, everything in your life. Everything. He has to be. He's entwined himself within you. He cares more about you than you care about yourself. He cares more about your loved ones than you do. He cares more about your finances than you do. He cares more about your health than you do. He, the great I am, cares so much. And so we have to quietly get onto his wavelength. Be still and know that I am. I am present. God is always present. Be still and know that I am God. I am the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the always-present in every and all matters that relate to you. Be still and know that I am God. throughout the day you can be just thinking about the different words just meditating on that verse you might want to write it down put it on the fridge in your car on your desk wherever you're going to pass by it and you look at it you take a moment see we've got to practice getting into his presence he's always there but we can live as though he's never there, but he's always there. Wanted to speak and to enter in and to really cause his word to take effect in our lives. We read it through again. We thank him. We praise him for who he is, for his promises that can never, never, never fail us. And all of a sudden, we sense faith rising in our hearts. It's as though, I don't know what to do, God. I don't know the solution to this problem. But I know one thing, you're there. And we have the victory. We have the victory. Are you going to pray for a stressful situation tonight? Now God will come and present you with a stressful situation that you might at least put this into practice. That's why they come. You don't have to pray for it. It's coming. Don't worry about that. It's coming. Sometimes with the teaching load I have, I feel sometimes overwhelmed by it all. I think I'm never going to get to the end of this. But I always do. So I don't think that anymore. I just thank you, Lord, that today is another day. We'll do what we have to do today, and tomorrow we'll do what we have to do tomorrow, because there is no other day. Lord, I've got the whole of eternity to live, so I'm not going to fuss about next week, next year, the year after. Otherwise, I've got to fuss about the whole of my life forever and ever and ever, and I've stopped doing that. Stop doing it. Just... Get to know him, his word. Let it enter into your spirit. Let it, let it be living and active, a force within you, creating faith within you. 
whatever the need is, you can take it. Say it's a financial need. Where do we go for our financial meditations? Um, how about uh, 2 Corinthians? And now, brothers, chapter 8, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonians. That's it. Meditate on that. Meditate on the Macedonians. Meditate on the grace that he gave them so they were able to give abundantly beyond what they were capable of doing. How on earth do you give above what you're capable of doing? But as you meditate on the scripture, as you let it come into you, as you let it into your spirit, not just your head, thank God for our heads, but it has to go beyond the head into the spirit and that's where it it generates life, the spiritual life that's so necessary. And whatever need we have, the Bible can meditate or give us passages to meditate on to see our way through. Turn in the scripture in your mind and let it dwell in your spirit. God's word then needs to be absorbed into our spirit. There's no separation between God and his word. God and his love, God and his word, entering into the hearts of his people, generating life and power and faith that we might do what he's asked us to do. It might not be a big thing, Everything's big with God. Thinking, who am I? What difference can I make? That's God's business. Everything with God is big. Just talking to your neighbour, that loving word or something, that's big with God. The world is made up of millions of tiny things that become big things. That's how it works. It's from there that faith flows into our lives. I'm going to stop there. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for our final lesson in the Practicing the Presence of God module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by going to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can give securely online. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.